And you mentioned that people do consider them kind of a source of human food, like not just eating our waste and then feeding them to chickens or something, but people can eat them. Have Have you eaten one? I have eaten one. Um, they are perfectly safe to eat. Uh, they taste a little bit like a sunflower seed when they're like dried and processed. Um, but I've been thinking of coming up with a book of like curry recipes for maggots. So someday in the future, that'll be a thing. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, science writer at Science News and Society for Science and the Public. When I think of the most voracious predators in nature, I usually go to something like the piranha. You know, takes down a fully grown cow in seconds, though that's not actually true. But if you want to be truly inspired by a predator's voracious feeding habits, consider the black soldier fly larvae. This tiny worm-like thing comes in numbers, and they will take down a fully grown pizza in a few hours. But it's still cool. And it's important, too, because these little guys could be critical to helping us humans manage our waste problem. And it's not what these bugs eat, but how they eat it that really matters anyway. To take us through her hmm, fountain of research on this topic is Olga Shishkov. She's a mechanical engineer at Georgia Tech. Welcome, Olga. Hi. I wanted to start with a couple of why questions, um, kind of to get a picture of your background. You actually study biomechanics, bioengineering, and you work in the laboratory of David Hu, and he's famous for some very weird studies, like the rate at which animals poop and pee and how elephants pick up cereal and that sort of thing. Was this how you envisioned your graduate school experience? Um, not necessarily, but once, once I realized that I could study crazy things like maggots for a living, I, I knew I just kind of had to do it. <laughs> and why did you want to go into engineering in the first place? So I wanted to go into engineering because when I was a high school senior, I was good at math and science. I was kind of into making things and people told me, well, you should go be an engineer. So I went to study engineering. And throughout engineering school, I realized that in addition to actually enjoying making things and things working um, I also really enjoy studying things and understand how they work and the pure science of it. Um, so after that, I decided to look more into fluid mechanics. And I uh, studied fluid mechanics for a master's thesis, and I enjoyed that so much that I decided to apply for a PhD. So for my PhD, I thought I'd be doing very similar things, um, studying turbulence, very in-depth studies of fluid flows. Um, then I talked to David, and I realized that I could just, I didn't have to just study one particular topic. I could study crazy things like insects and other animals and use the physics knowledge that I have and the experimental methods that I know to understand how that move, how they move. And that really got me excited about the topic. And that's how I ended up in the lab. Because yes, David, whose lab is all about fluid flow, even when it's about pooping. <laughs> Poop is a fluid. Sort of. But you study larvae, maggots, etc. Why did you end up wanting to look at black soldier fly larvae? Like, what are they about? So black soldier fly larvae are 
they're a potential source of sustainable protein for the whole world. Um, there are startups that raise them on a diet of food waste, and then the larvae themselves can be sold as feed for chickens or for fish. Um, they're even edible for people, but most people don't really think of a larva as edible. Uh, so I was interested in the sustainability aspect of that because it's essentially turning our food waste into more food that we can use. Um, and then the startup that we work for, that we work, the startup that we work with, Grubbly Farms, um, they sent us a video of the larvae eating a pizza. And that video really was really inspiring because of the way that the larvae move as they consume this pizza. And I really wanted to understand how it is that they, how it is that these larvae eat and how they manage to eat that whole thing so quickly. Now, you mentioned that they could be a source of sustainable food and people kind of raise them on food waste. Where are these animals kind of found in nature? Like, is this the sort of thing when I open my compost bin and I see like maggots, am I looking at those or am I looking at something else? Yes, the maggots that you find in your compost bin are very likely black soldier fly larvae. Um, they're not actually predators, they're scavengers. They will eat, you know, whatever people throw out. So they will be found on, in compost bins, um, on piles of poop in the forest, on maybe on carcasses in the forest, like really old ones, they might be on that. Um, really, they're spread all over the world. They're pretty resilient. And these are larvae, right? They, they will eventually become flies. Yes. They, so maggot is a very technical term for a larva that will become a fly. How long do they stay larvae? Like, how long is that period? Uh, anywhere from two weeks to about a month. Um, depending on how much they eat and how hot it is and other factors. One of the things that you mention in your paper on black soldier fly larvae is that they are capable of outcompeting other critters who might dine on the trash. How do they outcompete other organisms in terms of digestion? So in terms of digestion they can eat a lot um one larva can eat about twice its body weight per day and not only that but they're also uh raised in very large numbers or they grow in very large numbers um one fly will lay up to a thousand eggs at a time so even though they're very small each larva weighs uh about a fifth of a gram when you have thousands of them in the same compost bin they can easily outcompete the couple of worms that are hanging out in it I, I have to say, I think I have these in my compost bin, and I definitely have opened it up a few times and seen like a wriggling white mass. And it's a little unsettling, I'm not going to lie, <laughs> to see this wriggling mass of, of larvae. They really do come in numbers. <laughs> um, yeah. If you send me a picture, I can um, take a look at it and <laughs> let oh. you know. Oh, you're, I'm taking you up on that. I'm gonna, I'm yeah. gonna send you for identification all the items in my compost bin. <laughs> now, why did you specifically decide to focus on how quickly larvae eat and how they move when they do it? When I watched the video of the pizza uh, with my advisor, we were watching, watching how they eat and we found that when when, when they start eating that pizza and they break the crust a little bit, they just start grow, going through the cheese and they move through the cheese really quickly. And we wanted to answer a couple of questions. We wanted to understand um, how it is that they're actually able to get to that pizza in the first place since there's only so much space around it. And second, we wanted to know why, how it is that they eat the cheese before the, before they eat the crust. 
Um, and to do that, we wanted to do some more controlled experiments of their eating to really understand how it is that they're doing it. So larvae, like the rest of us, like the good parts of the pizza first is what you're saying. Yes, yes, that is. That, that's true. And it's also very important to understand this because if you're a company trying to raise these larvae, you want to eat, you want to feed them things that they'll eat quickly and things that they will grow well on. And nobody really studied this sort of thing in the past. Um, there's been a lot of work done on how much to feed a lot of larvae so that they will grow quickly, but not how are these individuals behaving and how do they feel about the whole situation? Now, you mentioned a couple of times this amazing video of black fly, black soldier fly larvae demolishing a pizza, and it is, it is inspirational. <laughs> but that's not exactly what you ended up feeding your larvae, right? What did you end up actually feeding them? So in our experiments, we fed the larvae orange slices. Uh, larvae like orange slices. They will eat them pretty quickly. And we can actually use them in a variety of experiments to test how larvae eat. In some other experiments, we, we also fed them chicken feed, uh, since that's a little bit more clumpy than an orange slice. Um, but I can definitely never look at an orange slice the same way again. Has it also ruined your, your love of pizza or... Pizza, I'm okay with. I wasn't actually there for the pizza filming, so that 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 is fine. So it's different to kind of watch the video as it is to like experience the larvae munching. You don't really get the smells in a video. Oh, what's it smell like? So the it. I mean, it smells like whatever you're feeding them, really. So if you're feeding them a pizza, it'll smell like pizza. Um, orange slices, it just smells a lot like orange slices. And after a while of that, it kind of gets exhausting. Um, you just kind of start to think everything smells like oranges. Um, but really the larvae are some of the least smelly larvae that there are. Other maggots can be much more smelly. So they're, they're nice. They're clean. They keep it, they keep it, you know, fresh. <laughs> yes. There have actually been some studies done that show that they can reduce the amount of E. coli or salmonella in food waste. So that's actually kind of useful. Now, you were looking specifically at feeding rates and also like the shape that larvae form as a mass when they're feeding. You did this with a lot of kind of high speed video. Can you talk about how your video process works and what you're looking for? Um, so for the videos, we so we had both uh, time lapse videos and high speed videos. Um, so with the time lapse videos, the ones where we recorded for a really long time, um, like 30 minutes to an hour. Um, we put the larvae in a aquarium, a 10 gallon aquarium with the, with an orange slice stuck to the bottom of it in the middle on a pin. And that way the larvae can't really push it around. Uh, it's, it, it stays where it is and the larvae have to move around it. Um, and we took two cameras, pointed one at the top of the container. So watching the larvae feed from the top, uh, pointed the other camera from the bottom of the fish tank so that's watching what it is what they're doing from the bottom and put the larvae in the container with the orange slice and let them just do their thing let them eat it and after that we put it into some image analysis we put those two videos into some image analysis uh software um which first it turns the images into black and white and crops out the edges then the the software is called Particle Image Velocimetry Lab, PIV Lab for short. And what that does is it separates out that fish tank into 
a bunch of blocks and it'll look at how the larvae the the larvae are now in black and white so it sees black dots on it it says it sees white dots on a black background and it's watching how it is uh that they're moving so for a second to se- from one second to the next second where did a bunch of larvae go and then it draws an arrow in that direction so over you know one second it's really random you can't tell if the larvae are going in one direction or the other but when we take the average of all of those velocity vectors, all of those directions that the larvae are going, uh, we find that, first of all, the larvae are spinning the food as they eat, and second and more importantly, on the bottom, the larvae are crawling towards the food and pushing each other and crawling towards that piece of food, and on the top, they're actually falling down and away from that piece of food uh, as they are replaced by hungry larvae behind it. So that's kind of how larvae manage to recirculate around the piece of food. One of the things that I particularly loved about this image of the larvae fountain and your uh, kind of your experimental design is that it turns out you cannot um, actually count out the number of larvae because they're too small that you need for your experiment. So you count them by weight. (laughs) So it's true. It's if you count, you know, a hundred larvae, that's fine. But if I count a thousand, I'm going to lose count somewhere. So. It's an easier way to do it. So I just love it. You you literally just put in like a, a big beaker of larvae and then just pour them in. Yes, ex- that's exactly what I do. <laughs> and you also, you saw this kind of fountain shape with the larvae kind of pushing each other up and out of the way to get access to the food. But you also looked at individual larval mouths um, as they ate. What do they, what do they look like? Like what's, what's the business end of a larvae <laughs> got um, going for so- it? Yes, so that's the videos that we had to take in high speed because the larva mouth actually moves pretty quickly. Um, So uh, it's actually kind of hard to see. So what happens is the larva mouth has, it has kind of a brush in the center and it has these two teeth next to it. Uh, The teeth are called maxillae. And these maxillae basically have um, little sensors on them that are probably able to taste the food. So what larvae do is they move one maxilla up then they move the next one up, and then they move both of them down, kind of asynchronously. So that allows the mouth to kind of shear off pieces of food. Uh, and I think that's also part of how they're actually tasting the food, is by taking these little bites and seeing, does this taste like food or does this not taste like food? And you mentioned they eat pretty fast. How fast do they go? So the these teeth move at about 27 radians a second, um, and they... Uh, will move at an amplitude of about a tenth of a millimeter. Uh, so they're pretty small, but they're also moving pretty quickly. But for something like a pizza crust, it's hard for them to bite it because it's pretty tough, and they see they're really small. Something like cheese is a lot easier for a larva mouth to eat. So does their speed vary, kind of depending on if they're eating the cheese or the sauce or the, or the crust? Do they slow down? You know, I don't know. It's... I, it's hard to, enough to film the larva mouth moving in the air. I It's hard to tell what it is that they're doing when the mouth is actually in the food because the mouth is in the food. Yeah. Now, you were looking at individual larval feeding, but one of the interesting things about these maggots is that they come in groups. And so you actually ended up doing some math looking at kind of the rates of larval feeding based on group size. Can you talk a little bit about what you found? 
to really understand how the larvae eat, we wanted to understand um, how much are they going to be able to eat uh, and how much, how does the group size affect how much they're able to eat. So what we did was we placed, um, we placed larvae with orange slices in containers, weighed the orange slices before the larvae ate them and after the larvae ate them, and saw how quickly the larvae ate that piece of food. And we did this with uh, from like 10 larvae to 500 larvae and then all the way up to 58,000 larvae eating this one orange slice. How, uh, how so- many, like, when you say 58,000 larvae, is that like a liter of larvae? <laughs> Oh no no! So a liter of larvae, um, a liter of larvae is probably I want to say around five or six thousand. It depends on how long they've been in the beaker. So um, fifty-six thousand larvae is like a gallon or more. Oh, it, fifty-eight thousand larvae is a crazy. It, it's it's a crazy amount of larvae. <laughs> um, so to so that that kind of took all of the larvae that Grubbly Farms had at the time. <laughs> Usually they have a lot more, but that was that was what they had, and that was the biggest number that we could do. Um, so, and that was all done by um, a very dedicated undergrad who was really into um, putting these orange slices into containers with larvae in them. Um, someone's so got to someone's got to do it. Did you get a major rush of power by contacting the farm and being like, "Give me all your larvae"? <laughs> it was it was interesting. It was a <laughs> lot of fun. Um, but we're also friends with them, so they are used to our crazy ideas. <laughs> um, so then we thought, how? so how do these larvae actually get to the food? Um, there's obviously at first when you have only um, a couple of hundred larvae around this orange slice, uh, they're going to kind of, they're all going to be able to get to it. There, there's enough space around the orange slice for a couple of hundred larvae. Uh, so that up to, up to that number, there's going to be um, any larvae that come in are going to be able to eat, and the mass is gonna, the mass of food eaten over time is going to increase pretty linearly with the number of larvae. Um, however, we found that the larvae also take breaks when they're eating. Each larva will eat for about. 44% of the time that it's around a piece of food. So some of the larvae that are around this piece of food, um, they're not actually eating all the time. They're all they're. All, on average, they're eating some amount, but there it could be eaten faster if all of the larvae around the piece of food were always eating. Uh, so then that kind of sets the upper limit of how much larvae can eat, since that's um, at some point if a lot of larvae are always getting to the food, there's always an eating larva at every available spot. Um, and between that, we kind of we didn't really know what was going on because how we didn't really know how the larvae were getting to the food. So that's when we did those uh, experiments with filming the larvae uh, around that orange slice in an aquarium and tracking their motion. So we did experiments where we did that, where we repeated that experiment only from the top view with from 500 larvae all the way to 10,000 larvae. And we saw that with more larvae in the container, that flow becomes stronger. And that actually allows enough larvae to reach the food such that all of the spaces around the food are always filled with eating larvae. Uh, so that actually allows the larvae to reach that plateau. And if um, when we plotted the eating rate data, um, 
how much they actually ate versus how much we predicted they ate, it actually matched pretty closely. Um, at actually really high numbers of larvae kind of ate more than we expected, probably because it was a lot hotter at the time that we did those experiments. Um, but that's the general idea. The fountain of larvae is able to um, increase the amount of larvae that are able to get to the food and effectively increase the surface area of that piece of food. So in other words, the larvae kind of increased the surface area by keeping it moving. Yes, yes. By allowing more and more larvae to get to that food. Now, you know, we look at this and we say, oh my God, look at these larvae because it's amazing. But why does it matter why larvae, like how larvae feed in groups? Um, so first of all, uh, it obviously matters for the startups that are raising them because they want to understand the insect that they're trying to raise. Um, maybe in the future we can use the study to optimize, um, how to actually uh, feed larvae. So where should the food be placed for the larvae to be happy and for them to eat the most while exerting the less energy, the least amount of energy so that this way they can get as fat as possible. Um, second, uh, this doesn't only apply to fly larvae. Uh, so you mentioned piranhas in your intro. Actually, I was looking at some piranhas eating and wondering how are all of these piranhas actually getting to whatever food that they eat? Um, and the fly lar- the piranhas actually have an advantage over larvae because they're able to swim up and down. So they have a lot more space to move in. So how does that change the dynamics? Um, on the other end of the spectrum, you have cows, right? Cows are pretty stationary. They're not going to push each other in any direction. Um, so they're kind of the opposite of larvae. And for them, you definitely need a lot of space around the food. So um, what you're saying is piranhas are your next field of study. Uh, they're... We have some other options lined up. (laughs) (laughs) But you're thinking about the piranhas. Thinking about the piranhas, yes. (laughs) And, you know, every study has its major challenges. What was the most challenging part of this paper for you? Um, The most challenging part of this paper for me was just all of these very different experiments that we had to do to get a complete picture. Um, the experiments with um, doing the particle image velocimetry and actually figuring out how the larvae are flowing around, it took us a very long time to figure out um, because you can't track an individual larva. It'll disappear within seconds. Uh, just go back into that pile, and we can't see into the pile of larva. Uh, we can't see into the pile of larvae. Um, so because of that, filming from the top and the bottom of of that container was challenging, but it also provided the insight that we needed uh, to really understand um, how it is that these larvae eat. And also none of that would have happened if I didn't have another very talented undergrad who I gave a video of larvae eating from the top and said, so this probably isn't going to work, but try this software on this video. And because he got that working, we were able to do so much more with actually figuring out how these larvae are moving. And, how do you feel about lar- like do you like the maggots do you <laughs> do you find them cute how do you feel having you know spent all this time working with maggots so as far as maggots go black soldier fly larvae are the cutest maggots that you can find um if you look up a picture of a blowfly larva it looks really gross and nasty and you can definitely tell that it's dangerous while if you look at one of my pictures of a black soldier fly larva it's kind of cute it's It's got like a little mouth. It's got little hairs, something that kind of looks like eyes. 
Um, I think they're adorable, honestly. <laughs> well, Olga, thank you so much for chatting with us. It was a pleasure. We've linked to more information about Olga Shishkov and her work at scienceforthepeople.ca. Next, we're talking to someone else from David Who's Lab about another set of tiny bugs that know how to do things better together. Stay tuned. Okay, we talked about these larvae that form fountains of wiggling, worm-like awesomeness, but they aren't the only insects that form pseudo-structures to get things done. Ants do too. They form towers and even rafts, all in the service of survival. How do they do it? And why do we care? That's why I'm talking with Sulise Ponkow, who got his master's in mechanical engineering at Georgia Tech. He now works for a fiber optics company, but he spent two years swirling up balls of ants for science. Sulise, thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. Now, I wanted to start by asking, you were in the lab of David Hu. He does a lot of, I guess, fluid mechanics, but it's it's on very strange things <laughs> like pee and larvae what made you want to study ants um i think it was mainly because there was such a diverse amount of knowledge you can learn from animals like it's not just fluids like we're fluids lab but we don't do just fluids like we did material testing mechanical properties so the diversity of things or inspired design you can look at from animals that's what made me interested in the lab. And what was it specifically about ants? And the ants was um, mainly because they can create all these unique structures and shapes and have these different mechanisms like making rafts, towers for survival. And no one has really figured out why they did that or the reasoning for the kind of shapes that come out that they made. So that's what kind of garnered some interest for me on that one. Now, there are two kinds of ants, I guess, that form these structures. You have your ants that form rafts, and you have your ants that form towers, and then ants also sometimes form bridges. Are there differences between like the raft ants and the tower ants? Um, for those in our studies that we have in a lab, um, they're the same ants. They're Solenopsis invicta, they're what you call common um, fire ants in the south of USA, and you can find them anywhere, especially in Georgia. Um, so they're considered invasive species, so we can kind of have free range to do experiments on them. And since they're invertebrates too, there's less paperwork to do when we do experiments on them. Now, fire ants, the thing I know about fire ants is they're called fire ants for a reason. How how much did you get bit? Um, pretty significant amount. Um, <laughs> I think after a couple of years, you kind of have some immunity to them, so they st- start to bother you a little less. Really? In or at least mentally, anyways. <laughs> <laughs> You're kind of mentally prepared. Do you do you just go out fearlessly now? You're like, I can do this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now these ants, they form rafts and they form towers. How do they stick together? Because I actually have a misconception about this. I always thought that ants stuck together by using their jaws to bite each other's butts. And I'm not uh, sure who told me that, but apparently it's not true. Uh, they, yeah, they actually don't do that. Um, <laughs> there's a couple of mechanisms that they do um, that they have. 
So at the end of their feet, they have these hooks that they can kind of hook together, um, kind of like monkey in a barrel, you know, that kind of game. And um, at the bottom of their feet, they have these sticky pads that secrete um, these viscous fluid that are so that they can walk on walls, they can walk on the ceilings, things like that. And like you said, they can use their jaws too, but that's um, a very low fraction of number of connections that they made. Because we actually measure the percentages of these connections before, like a previous um, student, uh, David, who did. And the, most of the connections are made by the sticky pads and the hooks on your legs. So you said they they secrete a sticky substance off their feet? Yes. Um, they have these um, soft pads at the bottom of their feet that um, secrete these sticky um, liquid. And that's what kind of helps them stick to walls and ceiling. That's and together, wild. And together, yeah. Wow. I did not know that. Is Is anybody like studying this sticky liquid to find out if we can like make tape or like ant tape or something um i'm not sure but there have been a lot of studies on the sticky pads that they have and different species have um varying strength to them too that's amazing i i did not know that so now ants don't just form they form these rafts and they form towers but they don't do it for fun times right when when do they form these structures um, so these mechanisms, they all root down to survival um, over long period of time, way longer than humans. They had to survive against natural disasters. Like we destroy ant um, colonies, rainwater. You know, once it gets flooded, especially in Georgia here, um, it will flood underneath the ground, and and obviously they can't live there anymore. So they link their bodies together, protect the queen, the lava, the larvae, and form these rafts that float on water. Um, once they connect together, they kind of form um, air pockets between them, and that kind of helps them float. Um, and so once the water is gone, they have to have a temporary place to live, right? So they build these towers. Um, some of them, we call them bivouacs, um, as a temporary shelter in the meantime before they dig their more permanent or semi-permanent underground shelters again. Oh, so like the raft is just kind of to get them through, and then the tower is like their FEMA shelter before they build their condos. Yes, exactly. <laughs> now, it, I, I was very interested in this because the rafts are not as strong as the towers in terms of like the raft. You can't have an ant in a raft hold up a pile of other ants, right? The ants are only so strong. Yes, that's correct. Um, so eventually, um, so they usually start out with a, well, in our lab, we start out with a ball of ants um, of varying sizes, four ant balls of varying sizes, and then they tend to spread out to form almost um, circular rafts, um, on average of about two and a half ant layers thick. So they can't really support too much weight, um, and that was mainly due be- to mainly due to um, them being on water too. And water can't really hold those kind of forces if anything falls on them. So if there's anything that falls on them, we've tested this too. Um, it actually breaks those connections and then just sinks under the water. And then the ants can kind of heal the rafts themselves and still t- stay together. So on average, it's two and a half ants. There's not like a half ant just hanging out. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, so they form these towers as kind of their like emergency shelter to like support each other while they dig a permanent home. How long does a tower generally last? 
um, I know personally, I haven't seen them in a while, but in our lab, we've left them for, I think, several days because they form these towers naturally in their um, containers that we keep them in our lab. So if we go back after a couple of days, you'll see these um, bell-shaped towers on the walls of these containers that's probably been there for at least three or four days and been pretty stable since then. Now, to study these ant towers in the lab, you had to go get the ants. <laughs> we talked a little bit about your previous ant encounters. Where do you get your ants? Um, so <laughs> I recruit a couple of um, brave undergrads. And oh, I see drive, how it is. <laughs> <laughs> drive um, about 30 minutes north um, of Georgia Tech and literally just get shovels and buckets and go find an anthill in the public um, park. And are are we, you choosy we, about which anthills? Do you like pick a nice big one or? Yeah, we, we try to aim for about at least 40 to 50,000 um, ants per colony that we dig up just so we have enough to do our experiments. Um, and so we bring them back. And so we use their raft, raft making um, properties to actually get them out of the dirt that we dig them out. So we slowly drip water into these buckets over a period of probably a day or two. And since once it gets flooded, these ants flow up and form these rats, and that's how we collect them from our buckets that we uh, basically drown them in. Except they don't drown because they're ants and they're very powerful. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And is this the point where I imagine you've got ants crawling all over you and biting you like anything while you're trying to dig them up? Um, Yeah, so we try to be a little bit um, preemptive. We have gloves, long sleeve shirts. We also coat our shoes and hands, gloves with um, baby powder, and that makes it slippery. That prevents them from being to walk on um, stick to surfaces, so that kind of helps with preventing the bites. <laughs> Still, that is that is hardcore. <laughs> I hope those undergrads got paid. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Some of them. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> <laughs> and you mentioned swirling balls of ants. Now, is there is there a trick to getting a swirling ball of ants? Is this like in the wrist? Like how how does one form a swirling ball of ants? Um, so you usually get a pretty good depending on the size of the ball, you get a pretty um average size be- size beaker um and probably to make a good ball, about ten grams of ants, which is on average about uh, 10,000 ants and coat the sides with, um, baby, again, baby powder that prevents it from sticking to the wall and going everywhere. And you kind of swirl it kind of like when you're trying to mix liquids together. And that's kind of how you make your ant ball. And, and so why do you start with a ball of ants when you're trying to study an ant tower? So for, um, consistency in our experiments, uh, we have to try to make it, um, the same starting point every time during for every experiment, and we decide on the ball just because it's the simplest way to simplest shape that we can make. Because you know, there's ten thousand ants. It's very hard to make them incorporate into um, other shapes. Cat herding has nothing on ant herding, is what you're saying? <laughs> Essentially, <laughs> yes. Now, why were you trying to study the towers that these creatures form? What were you hoping to find? Um, so essentially we were trying to find the, why the towers always have this consistent shape going on. Like the, um, 
at first we thought it was um, cylinder, but on closer inspection, it's more of an exponential shape, kind of bell shape. And there's a really interesting property with that shape in particular, where um, it's in material science, it's the shape of constant stress, meaning for as long as it's maintained this shape, um, each you discretize the towers into different layers, all the stress in that tower are the same. And that kind of what started this whole project. Now, when you're talking about kind of a bell-shaped structure, we humans don't generally build in that sort of shape, but there are a couple of shapes that actually have the shape of constant stress um, in architecture. I'm particularly thinking of like the Eiffel Tower. Is it that sort of thing? Yes, exactly. Okay. Um, and ants <laughs> are many things, <laughs> very painful, <laughs> very hard to control, but they aren't very big thinkers. <laughs> so how did you hypothesize that ants would form a tower like that, forming this kind of cohesive single unit out of thousands of individuals? Um, so like you said, they're very simple um, animals. They only really follow local cues, their surrounding and certain rules. So in our study, we came up with a couple of rules that they follow to form these towers. And in doing so, it's actually very similar to the way that they form rafts, where if there's an ant on top of them, they don't move. That's the first rule. Second rule, if they're on top of another ant, but they're not attached to anything, they move around in random direction. And then once there's an available space in those towers uh, to adjacent ants, they fill that space and stay there. And then the fourth rule is for these towers. The top is um, actually very not very stable at all. Just constant moving, them trying to keep finding spaces to fill. And since the top is always available, there's always going to be ants moving on there. So what um, we found later on after, it was actually um, the previous grad student did the experiment and left it and forgot about it actually for a couple of hours and he filmed it. And so he, it was way too long to look through real time. So he sped it up and found that these towers are actually flowing. So once they form these towers, it um, actually is in constant constant state of motion too. And that's um, kind of because of the fourth rule there. So how long does it take for a colony of ants to form a tower like this? You mentioned the guy forgot about it for several hours. Uh, yes. So um, it can range from about 30 to 40 minutes for 10,000 10, ants to form a complete tower. Um, again, it could be more if we add more ants too, but we were um, using 10,000 as a standard. And how did you end up analyzing the tower's to kind of come up with this set of rules that ants live by. Um, so for the sh there were a couple of couple of things that we did um, for the shape of the tower. Um, we filmed it in with our lab setup and actually throughout through each um, time period, we looked at the tower shape, tower height, and then from that we can kind of look at the how many ants are in a layer. Once we discretize it to an average ant length of about three, three and a half millimeters, an inch width of one millimeter. So you can see, um, you can count or estimate how many ants are in each tower, how tall the tower is, 
the building rate, things like that. Um, for ant movement, we actually had to physically look through it real time and track individual ants to see their movements. And based on how they're filling these slots, um, there's some statistics that we look at um, based on the amount of time that it takes for them to fill these slots and to show that it is this is a random um, movement that they're doing or random time to build these um, slots that they're building. And <laughs> I found this especially funny because this tower building only applies to live ants because you attempted to make towers out of dead ants. <laughs> Uh, yes, <laughs> um, just to show that, you know, um, ants are not just, they're actively making this shape. So if you try to do it with um, dead ants, um, it becomes kind of like a grain of sand, or have you ever um, played with sand and that when it falls, it has that um, cone shape to them instead of this bell shape. So they lose their ability to like be sticky and find the next spot up and that sort of thing. Yes, yes. And we were talking about these towers, and we mentioned they're a, they're a bell shape, but they're also always leaning against something, right? These are not freestanding. Yes, that is correct. There's always a support, a wall, a post, or something for them to build on. And so in nature, is it like a tree or something? Yeah, usually a tree. Um, I know in one of our paper, we had um, actually a stick in one of the swamp in Louisiana. Um, so I think... Two years ago was um, pretty bad. There was some flooding in Texas, I think, and there were ant rafts and ants were building onto people's homes or basically ant invasions. Um, they were building towers right in people's homes. Flooding to see this. <laughs> oh man, that's got to be miserable. <laughs> now you did all of this video analysis. When you did the video analysis to track the individual ants, did you like? dab an ant with paint how did you track an individual ant to like figure out where it was going uh we we've d done that a couple of times where we dabbed it with paint um to look at the surface level ants um i also just very zoom in and look at it in slow motion too to kind of track where they're going and we can kind of map out where they are in the tower um in addition to that um since we can only see since all the ants are the same color, same shape, and we can't really differentiate between them, um, we also put them through an x-ray machine um, during the uh, building process, too. So we gave them some radioactive um, contrast medium and then tracked internals of the towers, too. Oh, so you could actually see inside the tower while it was being built? Um, yes, and that's how we found out that it's actually not a stable tower, but a constantly circulating tower where ants exit from the bottom and keep rebuilding the same shape over and over again after it reaches an equilibrium point. That's amazing. Are there any videos of like the X-ray ants building up from the inside? Uh, yes, uh, we actually we have it um, in an interface that where we published the paper. Oh. Um, we also have a video underneath too, um, where we filter out from the bottom to track movements of the ants, kind of shows the tunnels that they bore th through the ants to show the movements from the underneath. Well, I'm going to get a link to that video and put it on the site so that everybody who's listening can see this because I'm super excited. <laughs> <laughs> now, you came up with these like four rules that ants build by... Why 
does it matter that we understand how fire ants build towers? So um, it's a big deal right now with, in, in my opinion, in um, bio-inspired design, or especially in robotics, um, where we're trying to build cheap, efficient um, machines to work together to form these big tasks. Like you see ants by themselves, they can't really survive floods, and they, you know, um, predators, easy prey, but together they can survive for weeks um, for flooding and not having an underground shelter. And I think this could inspire to make cheaper robots to kind of work together to do cooperative tasks. So you envision like an army of small ant robots going forth and building like the Empire State Building out of their bodies. Yes, that would be amazing. (laughs) Is that something that we could ever achieve? Um, I think right now um, the technology is not there yet. There have been some that there are a lot of cooperative robots like you see drones making shapes. Um, I think a project in MIT, they have these robots forming bridges, um, these boat robots forming bridges together. So it's there, but it's still very early because the these ants, they're very, um, you got to look at how strong they are too individually. Um, like they can, you know, for fire ants, they can live like 40, 50 times their own weight. They can stick together. Um, these hooks are very strong. Um, they can probably lift about 100 to 200 times their own weight too. And with the current technology that we have in our world, um, we don't have the capability for that yet. So basically we need to replicate an ant and make it a lot bigger. And then we'll um, get there. <laughs> yes. Um, that's the hard part because um, scaling properties um, are a little different at that their scale versus our scale. So that's the big challenge right now. Have you done any looking at ant bridges? Because I know, I think it's the same ants. Fire ants will form bridges, right? Between points? Uh, yes, actually. That was actually my first project at the lab. Um, but it was never published. Um, where Dr. Who gave me some ants and he told me, go build a bridge. And that was what I spent my summer doing. Um, Did he literally so- just hand you a flask of ants and say, go build a bridge with this? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> um, and that's how my starter lab was. <laughs> and did it did it work? Um, it, it worked actually. So in the wild, they build bridges too to um, cross gaps, right? There's in in their environment, there's a, it's uneven surfaces like trees, grass, and different gaps that are small to us but big to them. So they connect their bodies together and form live bridges to kind of have the shortest path home, shortest path to their food sources. And over time, um, these, these bridges, um, not in, we didn't do this study in fire ants, but in army ants, they kind of adjust based on how much traffic they are. Actually, they actually make the bridges bigger when there's more traffic on top of them, S- smaller bridges when there's less traffic on them, um, on, on top of them. And so they use this to basically, find the shortest path to their food source or home. And this is not the same as like ants just kind of standing on top of each other to build a tower. Like how does an ant hook end to end with another ant to make a bridge? Um, in kind of the same um, aspect as the rafts and the um, tower, they use their the hooks 
um, adhesive pads on their feet, sometimes their manables. And the really interesting things about this, uh, these kind of bridges is they're self-healing too. Like they react to vibration. That's what um, I did a study on. I put them through different frequencies of vibration, different amplitudes, and they st- stiffen up once there's vibration. They loosen when there's less vibration. So we can kind of make these bridges like um, I I can send you this video later, but um, I essentially made these bridges shrink and uh, contract and expand, contract and expand based on the um, vibration that we put them through. I can't help but imagine whenever you see like humans in the movies and they form like a human bridge and other people are like crawling over them, they're always kind of screaming. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just picturing all the ants in the bridge being like, ah! Yeah, essentially, it's like um, that movie World War Z, where the zombies um, form a, hu- a zombie tower to yes. go over the wall, right? Ah! <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't wait to see that video. <laughs> so, let's say thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you for having me. We've linked to more information about Suisei Pankyo and his work at scienceforthepeople.ca. If you head over there, you'll also find links to Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes. Subscribe to the show, leave us a friendly review, and follow us for updates. We've also got a Patreon page. We are all volunteers here, and every donation helps us maintain our equipment and bring you cool things like live shows and stickers. Everybody likes stickers. So go support us. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. <laughs> <laughs>